Hey y'all, this is Jessica. And this is Amy. And we are 1096 Prom Chicks. What, what? And we are back after a very long break and some technical difficulties. So we are just re-recording this for your pleasure. And um, maybe we'll have some better information in this one anyway, so. Yeah. Um, this is part four. The final part for Joe Bryan. But I know we will have more updates soon because... This last Friday. hearing ended Friday. We just don't have the results of it yet. Yes. So we're going to be updating this case, hopefully periodically, not full-blown episodes, but we'll be able to throw it out there to you guys just to keep you all up to date with the case and what's going on. Anyway, so we left off with... Pamela Koloff, the yeah. author of Blood Will Tell from the New York Times. We left off with her talking about the blood spatter class that she went to. Yes, the 40-hour um, class yes. that made you an expert. Yes. So. Yeah, that's where we left off, and now we're going to kind of get into some of the expert opinions and then Updates. wrap it up. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, all right, Amy, take it away. All right. Pamela Koloff's experience in Yukon left her with more questions than answers, prompting her to reach out to two respected forensic scientists, Peter DeForest and Ralph Ristenbeck. DeForest taught criminalistics for 39 years at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and studied in the 1960s under Paul Leland Kirk, a biochemist and forensic scientist who established a pioneering academic program in criminalistics at the University of California, Berkeley in the 1950s. Riston Bat teaches forensic science at Penn State University and is a former student of DeForest's. Both men have been sharply critical of the phenomenon of the 40-hour class and of the, quote, huge leap. DeForest said that police officers who take such classes and who lack a rigorous scientific education often make when they use bloodstains to create a wholesale reconstruction of a crime. Curious what he and Ristenbat would make of Thorman's findings, she provided them with some basic information about the Bryan case, including the autopsy report, Thorman's report, testimony and copies of photos of the flashlight and crime scene. Thorman himself had not examined the flashlight in person. He based his findings on photos alone. Because that makes sense. Right. Let me just look at this and I'll tell you what happened. Yeah. DeForest and Ristenbat were troubled by the significance that the prosecution ascribed to the flashlight, which Ristenbat noted was, quote, an isolated piece of evidence found in isolation and without context. Because it was not recovered at the crime scene, DeForest added, quote, its history is completely unknown. We don't know when the blood got onto it or when it was placed in the trunk. Moreover, they did not support Thorman's conclusion that the tiny flecks of blood on the lens were backspattered. It was, quote, irresponsible to make such a classification, DeForest said, given the small amount of blood involved and the limited surface area of the flashlight lens. It's totally specious, and there's no evidence to support it, he added. Ristenbad explained that there were, quote, many mechanisms other than gunshots that can cause similar patterns, but that it would be difficult to determine how the blood was deposited on the flashlight when it was divorced from the location where the actual bloodletting occurred. I didn't know that blood could divorce. Why can't okay. we just say separated? Right? <laughs> During the course of their conversation, DeForest and Ristenbat dismantled virtually every aspect of Thorman's testimony. They rejected the notion that backspatter would not travel more than 46 inches, as Thorman testified. Bevel's textbook makes a similar claim, stating that small droplets can travel no farther than around 48 inches horizontally. The distance airborne blood can travel, DeForest explained, is highly variable. 
He and Ristenbach agreed that it was impossible to deduce from the available evidence that the killer had held the flashlight in his hand as he fired the fatal shots or changed his clothes in the master bathroom, as Thorman testified, before fleeing the house. Arriving at those conclusions, quote, takes a lot of imagination, DeForest noted. Thorman declined to be interviewed for this article. Imagine that. I wonder why. That Thorman had extrapolated far beyond what the evidence supported was the natural outcome, Ristenbat said, of a 40-hour class. Quote, if you don't understand the basic science, then you won't understand its limitations, he said. Very true. Well, when we talked about blood splatter, they talked about a lot of the math that is involved in it. And the right. equations and the distance and traveling and speed. And I just don't see how a 40-hour class would qualify you to be an expert. Right. And know? the teacher told them exactly what to put in their exactly. scientific calculator. And no matter what, you were getting a certificate. Exactly. So, needless to say, I'm devastated about not making parole, Joe wrote to Leon Smith on October 9th, 2010, less than a week shy of the 25th anniversary of Mickey's murder. I was so upset that for several days I just shook with anger. Joe's 70th birthday had just passed and he was slower on his feet. He had developed a heart condition and circulatory problems and that fall he was in poor health. I've been back and forth to John Seeley Hospital so much in the last two months that my mail did not catch up with me until yesterday, he wrote, referring to the Galveston Hospital where he was transported for medical care. I did get a new battery for my pacemaker so I don't have to worry. Before he signed off, he expressed his gratitude to Smith. Thank you for believing me, he wrote. Give my best regards to Carol. It was the second time that the Texas Pardons of Parole had rejected Joe's bid for freedom. He became eligible for parole in 2007 after serving 20 years in prison. Despite the gravity of his crime he stood convicted of, he had hoped his pristine disciplinary record, unsullied by even a minor infraction, made him a promising candidate for early release. He had distinguished himself within the walls where he served as the pianist for the prison's weekly chapel service, and he had collected enthusiastic letters of support, including a rare endorsement from his job supervisor, who told the parole board that Joe was, quote-unquote, an exemplary model offender. Everyone echoes the same opinion of Joe Bryan. He does not belong here. Yet, because the board's deliberations are kept secret, Joe would never learn why his request for parole was denied, or who would be protesting his release, or what their letters of opposition asserted. Nor would he know if not expressing remorse, he told board members, he had been wrongly convicted, was considered a mark against him. Now, remember in the Shawshank where he always says he's a changed man, I'm a changed man, they don't grant him parole. Right. But then at the end, he's like, I'm not a changed man. And they let him go. Yeah. Like, I wonder if that's, you know, they're just waiting for him to say, I did it. Like, complete opposite. You know, right. just waiting for him to say, I did it. In 2010, as Joe's odds of winning parole looked increasingly slim, he received some encouraging news. One of his first cousins, a court reporter, had asked a Waco attorney named Walter Revis to look at Joe's case years earlier, and Revis had recently decided to take the case to Baylor Law School, where he supervised a clinic focusing on wrongful convictions. Hardworking and professional, Revis was known for taking on long-shot cases, particularly those in which flawed forensic testimony helped secure a guilty verdict. In 2001, he won the freedom of a man named Calvin Washington, who was convicted of a 1986, partly on the dubious testimony of a later discredited forensic dentist who used a single bite mark on the victim to link Washington's co-defendant, and by implication, Washington, to the crime. The victim had been sexually assaulted, and DNA testing of the rape kit later excluded both men. Revis also handled the unsuccessful appeal of Cameron Todd Willingham, an East Texas man who was executed in 2004 for killing his three children in a house fire, a conviction that rested on the forensic analysis of arson investigators whose methods were later called into question. 
Revis was troubled by the circumstantial nature of the Bryan case, from the lack of evidence that placed Joe and Clifton at the time of the murder to the lack of scientific rigor in Thorman's analysis. Thorman's testimony at both trials, Revis told her, was nothing short of appalling. Still, he knew the chances of getting Joe's conviction overturned were slim. An appeals court had already rejected the notion that there was insufficient evidence to convict him. There was only one option left, to file a writ of habeas corpus, the final opportunity a defendant has, after all other appeals have been exhausted, to persuade the courts to review the case. To be successful, Revis would have to produce new evidence that cast the reliability of the verdict in doubt. Revis decided to petition the court for DNA testing, though he doubted it would deliver the magic bullet the case needed. The circumstances of Mickey's murder differed from those of many DNA exonerations, like Calvin Washington's, in which the sexual assault occurred and a defendant could be excluded once a rape kit was analyzed. Because the murder happened in the Bryan home, Joe's DNA would most likely be present, making an exclusion impossible. But there was always a chance that biological material was present that could, perhaps, lead to an alternate suspect. In 2011, Revis petitioned the court for DNA analysis of the cigarette butt, the flashlight, and semen-stained underwear that was found in the wastebasket of the Bryan's bathroom. The Bosque County District Attorney's Office did not stand in the way of his request, but the results, which Revis received in the summer of 2012, yielded no new information. No DNA profile could be obtained from the cigarette butt or the underwear. A partial profile on the lens of the flashlight was too limited for a meaningful interpretation, the report noted. But amid the report's technical language, one detail stood out. A single sentence about the flashlight which stated, quote, a presumptive test for blood was negative on the lens. No blood on the lens. Crazy. Yes. In other words, the test could not confirm that what looked like blood spatter was actually blood. The report stopped short of determining why blood might not now appear to be present, but the bewildering results served as a reminder that Joe's conviction hung by a gossamer thread. 27 years after the murder, despite advances in DNA testing that had unlocked the secrets to innumerable, seemingly unsolvable crimes, no one was any closer to knowing whether the minute reddish-brown flecks on the flashlight lens were actually Mickey's blood or even whether they were blood at all. Revis was buoyed when a second-year Baylor law student named Jessica Freud enrolled in his legal clinic in 2013, bringing a new energy and a boundless sense of optimism. Born in December 1985, the preternaturally cheerful Florida native was two months younger than the case itself. She had signed up for the clinic to see if she had an affinity for criminal defense work, and when she finished reading the transcript of Joe's retrial, more than 2,000 pages long, she had found her calling. Quote, I couldn't believe someone had been convicted on so little, she said. Not yet defeated by the recalcitrance of the criminal justice system or the laboriousness of trying to win a new trial for someone twice convicted, she began brainstorming with her classmates. What investigative avenues, if any, had not been explored? Who was still alive? Jesse gave me hope that we'd get somewhere, Revis said. Over the next three years, first as a law student and then as a practicing lawyer with an office down the hall from Revis's, Freud collaborated with her mentor on Joe's writ of habeas corpus. Smith, who had stepped down as editor of the record, worked closely with the two lawyers as they looked for any information that might strengthen the appeal. He was elated when Revis succeeded in getting the Clifton Police Department to grant access to the Bryan and Whitley files, everything that remained out of his grasp more than two decades earlier. Buried inside the banker's boxes 
were recordings and transcripts of the interviews law enforcement conducted during its posthumous investigation of Dennis Dunlap. It was while poring over these files that Smith discovered a revelatory passage in an interview with one of Dunlap's ex-wives, who told investigators of his terrifying, unpredictable behavior. He shot her children's rabbits to death, she said, and once threatened to disfigure her. He also told her a few chillingly specific details about the Whitley murder years after the fact. And they say that serial killers, you know, start <clears throat> off killing animals. Yes. You it's know. part of the McDonald triad, I think is what it's called. It's ridiculous. But yeah. This man did all these things and he was a police officer. I know. When asked whether her ex-husband had ever spoken of other homicides, she told investigators that he had bragged and probably of having an affair with Mickey Bryan. He also claimed to have been with her shortly before she was killed. All he told me was that he dated her, Dunlap's ex-wife stated. He dropped her off that night or that evening, and they had said they were going to break up. Neither investigator had asked her a single follow-up question, quickly returning to the subject of Whitley. Despite the efforts of Smith, Freud, and a private investigator, no one succeeded in getting his ex-wife to respond. But Freud learned from Susan Klein, the fifth-grade teacher who had worked across the hall from Mickey, and Linda Liarden, a good friend of the Bryans, that Dunlap separately made unwanted overtures towards them when he was at the Clifton Police Force, leering encounters that had spooked them so much that as each woman drove away from home, she took a meandering route home to throw him off of her trail. In Klein's case, Dunlap briefly followed her before disappearing into the night. Was it possible that Mickey and Dunlap crossed paths in the hours leading up to her death? Freud found another clue in records of Ranger Joe Wiley, the lead investigator. On October 16, 1985, the day after the murder, Wiley jotted down a note about two women, met Dunlap at Lazy Fisherman Friday night, question mark, who may have been with Dunlap at a restaurant in Waco. Though Dunlap had left Clifton soon after Whitley was killed before Mickey's murder, the note suggested that he might have returned to the area around the time of Mickey's death. This lead did not appear to have been ever followed up on. Instead, the full force of the state's resources had been brought to bear on Joe, even as prosecutors had searched for the theory about why he would have murdered his wife in the first place. In a memo that Rebus and Freud found in the district attorney's files under the words possible motives, someone had typed, quote, need to get out of second marriage without a divorce, another romantic interest, money, wife starting menopause or current bitch. The number one theory which topped the list was a single word, queer. I just, I can't. I know. All because they found a Chippendales calendar. Right. In their writ, which they filed in 2016 and amended the following year, Revis and Freud advanced numerous claims to support their argument that Joe was entitled to another trial, contending that the newly discovered evidence about Dunlap could have swayed the jurors. They focused particular attention on the role that the bloodstain pattern analysis had played in winning the two convictions. Challenging the soundness of the conclusions Thorman made on the stand, Revis and Freud pointed to his lack of experience in the field and his inadequacy of training. Much of this testimony was contrary to known and accepted science or exhibited a lack of understanding of the relevant scientific principles. Allowing someone with such limited proficiency to testify as an expert, they argued, was the equivalent of allowing a first-year law student to represent a defendant in a capital murder case. The laundry's done. <laughs> Last summer, Revis and Freud filed a motion separate from the writ requesting that the remaining forensic evidence in the case undergo DNA testing. This included a human hair found in the trunk of Joe's Mercury that did not match either of the Bryans, along with fingernail clippings and vaginal swabs taken at Mickey's autopsy. Though the evidence was old and of uncertain significance, no semen was detected on the swabs back in 1985, 
Rapid advances in DNA analysis held out the promise, however remote, that new information might be gleaned. Revis and Freud also sought further examination of the flashlight in the hope of understanding why, in 2012, it tested negative for the presence of blood. But under the newly elected Bosque County District Attorney Adam Sibley, their request was met with unexpected resistance. Sibley's predecessor, B.J. Shepard, cooperated with Rebus' original requests for testing, but for reasons that have never been made clear, Sibley has taken a harder stance. Sibley did not respond to multiple requests for, take, for an interview, nor did Andy McMullen, who prosecuted the Bryan case and who left the district attorney's office in 1997. Joe was not entitled to further testing under Texas law, prosecutors argued in court filings, because analysis of the items could not exonerate him. At best, it could only cast doubt on his conviction by suggesting the presence of a possible alternative suspect. A defendant, Sean Carpenter, an assistant district attorney, wrote, is not entitled to testing that merely muddies the waters. Judge James Morgan, who presided over both of Joe's trials three decades earlier, appeared skeptical of the state's logic at a hearing last August pointing out that the use of DNA analysis in criminal investigations came about only after Mickey's murder. What's the harm, he pressed. This wasn't available to us back in 85. He later issued an opinion ordering testing to proceed. Still, the district attorney's office did not back down. Prosecutors appealed the decision to Texas's 11th Court of Appeals, which has not yet handed down an opinion. Should the court rule that DNA testing may move forward, Prosecutors will most likely appeal the decision to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, the state's highest criminal court, a move that could effectively delay testing for years. The million-dollar question is, why is the DA's office fighting this so hard, Rivas said. Because then they would have to try to go find the real killer, and that right? means they would have to work. In late 2016, Rivas got a welcome bit of good news. The Texas Forensic Science Commission, which investigates complaints about the misuse of forensic testimony and evidence, announced that it had agreed to review another murder case that hinged on a bloodstain analyst's testimony. Created by the state legislature in 2005 in the wake of a scandal at the Houston Police Department's crime lab, the commission, made up of seven scientists, one prosecutor, and one defense attorney, does not investigate defendants' guilt or innocence, but rather the reliability and integrity of the science used to win their convictions. Its investigations often grow beyond the individual cases before them, extending to entire forensic fields, and it has emerged over the past decade as one of the most influential bodies in the country in advancing reforms. After the National Academy of Sciences issued its 2009 report, the Commission made sweeping recommendations. It issued detailed findings about how to modernize arson science and improve the interpretation of DNA mixtures, and in 2014, it began the first review in the nation of state convictions based on microscopic hair analysis, a widely used technique whose accuracy has been challenged. Two years later, the Commission called for a moratorium on the use of bite mark evidence, having been unable to validate a basic premise of forensic dentistry, that a suspect can be identified from a bite mark on a victim's body. But in its 11 years, the commission had yet to scrutinize bloodstain pattern analysis. It's good to see that they're trying to do something about that, though. Yeah. For future cases, but then you got to think of all the old cases that probably will never get relooked at. You know. I know. The troubling case that prompted its inquiry centered on the 1987 murder of a man named Ed Clark, who was shot and killed in bed. His wife Norma claimed to be asleep in another room at the time, and though she was investigated, a grand jury declined to bring charges. But in 2010, Houston cold case investigators revisited the evidence and observed tiny stains on 
the nightgown Norma wore the night of the murder. Certain they were looking at the high-velocity impact spatter, which indicated that she was in proximity to her husband when he was shot. Norma was charged with murder and extradited from Tennessee, where she had lived quietly for years. Yet all the stains but one, a single microscopic spot, came back negative for the presence of blood. No DNA profile could be established from the speck, and whether it was her husband's blood remained unknown. Despite a previous assault on Ed in the Clark's home by an unknown attacker and a death threat left on the couple's answering machine days before Ed's murder, Norma Clark was convicted in 2013. Shortly after the commission's announcement that it was looking into the Clark case, Revis filed a complaint asking its members to also review Joe's case. Norman was not qualified then or now to testify, and his conclusions are not and were not supported by valid scientific principles, Revis wrote. Bam. Yes. Get him, Revis. <laughs> the standards for admitting such testimony should be far more rigorous than simple attending one 40-hour course. Dorman told me that he couldn't comment until after the commissioner's investigation was completed. So, I called him. He said he couldn't talk. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dorman said he could not comment. Joe's lawyers were thrilled when the commission members decided that his case was worthy of further investigation. The question on everyone's mind was, how could someone with such limited experience testify on something so significant? The question on everyone's mind was, how could someone with such limited experience testify on something so significant? Were there any standards that governed who could testify as a bloodstain expert? With those questions in mind, the commission decided not only to investigate the integrity of the bloodstain interpretation in Joe's case, but also to go one step further and examine the way in which bloodstain pattern analysis are trained, with an eye towards setting standards for a discipline that had, for decades, managed to resist them. In February, the commission made one of the most consequential decisions in the field short history. It stipulated that bloodstain pattern analysis must be performed by an accredited organization if it is to be allowed in court. Someone like Thorman, who had not been affiliated with the crime lab, would have difficult complying with the new standards. Analysts will have to undergo proficiency testing. Their cases will be reviewed and there will be an outside audit of their work each year. Their testimony will be monitored to ensure they aren't overstating their findings in court. Many details, like educational requirements, have yet to be worked out. The change does not take effect until May 2019. Though the Commission's decision affects only Texas, it is expected to prompt other states to follow suit, as its reforms often do. Because it's Texas. Right. That's how we do it. We do it big in Texas. Yes, we do. <laughs> One morning in April, Pamela Koloff was escorted inside the walls past several heavy mechanical gates that snapped closed behind her. She took a seat in the visitor's room, just as Leon Smith did 27 years earlier. Joe was already waiting for her, sitting on the other side of the glass partition, his hands folded in front of him. His face looked pale and careworn under the prison's fluorescent lights. Now 77, he has congestive heart failure and is on his third pacemaker. Sometimes he found himself out of breath, his heart racing. Quote, I run out of gas quick, he said, before adding with a smile, the only thing I can still do, like I did 20 years ago, is talk. Though most men his age have long since retired, Joe continues to work six days a week from 5 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. in the prison laundry where he holds a clerical job. He told her that he could probably find a way to dodge the work requirement, but that's not who I am. I like to be involved in what's going on. He prided himself on still being able to type 124 words per minute. That is a lot. talent. Yes, it is. <laughs> Though he had never used the internet, having been confined to the walls since the 1980s. When he was not at work, he read two to three books per week and played piano in the prison chapel where he was allotted time to practice. Though he remained physically active, he said that he found it increasingly difficult to carry everything out of his cell block when the guards conducted regular searches for contraband. 
Often the younger inmates, men in their 20s and 30s who called him Pops, hauled his things for him. To make it easier, he had gotten rid of his typewriter and pared down his belongings. His life's possessions, he said, could now fit in an overnight bag. Oh, that's so sad. Heart. She had been to the walls before to interview Joe, but what was different that morning as they sat and talked was a sense of momentum. The visiting judge who was presiding over his writ of habeas corpus had decided that the battle over DNA testing should not hold back the progress of the appeal, and he set a date for an evidentiary hearing at which Joe's attorneys will be allowed to call witnesses and present new evidence to support their argument that their client should be granted a new trial. The hearing will take place in August in Comanche, where Joe's retrial was held. The presiding judge will then make recommendations to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, whose justices will be the final arbiters. Before then, in July, the Texas Forensic Science Commission is expected to complete its investigation into the reliability of blood stain interpretation in Joe's case. And though its conclusions are not admissible in court, Joe said that he was heartened to know that his case has triggered new standards for blood stain pattern analysts. Quote, it takes some of the emotional turmoil and anger and grief away, he said. Joe still calls Smith every few weeks and they discuss their health, Clifton News, and the latest legal updates. Recently, Joe told Smith he was being considered for parole again, and of his hopes, despite having been rejected three times in the past five years, that he would someday get to go home. In his conversation with him that morning, he kept returning to the two subjects that, that preoccupied him, his late wife and the town that had turned on him. Mickey was a very private person, he said. I don't think anyone, including me, ever really got the depth of Mickey. As they talked more, he began to cry. I missed her so much, he said quietly. He often thought back on little intimate moments he had had shared with her. He said that it did not seem particularly significant at the time, but had grown more meaningful in her absence. One which he recounted made him smile at the memory of how in the evenings they would watch Wheel of Fortune together and race to meet each other at guessing the missing letters before they were revealed. Whoever lost had to fix the popcorn and the cold drinks, he said. He still felt stung by the rejection of so many of his peers in Clifton, people who had entrusted him with their children, who had worked beside him, who him and Mickey had welcomed into their home. How could they think that I would do something like that when they saw me every day, every week? Joe said he still subscribed to the Clifton Record, even though Smith is no longer the editor. Besides Smith, the newspaper is his last remaining lifeline to that place. Despite everything, he remembers with fierce nostalgia, Mickey and I loved living there. We felt complete. Each week when the record arrives, he sits in his cell on the bottom bunk of his bed and smooths the pages out before him. He savors each detail about the Clifton High School Cup's football victories, the latest crop reports, the livestock judging at the fair. He studies the grainy photographs searching for the faces of his former students, softened by middle age. Many of them have their own children now. He reads the weather, the obituaries, the engagements, the wedding and birth announcements, each reminder of a world that keeps turning on his axis without him. This makes me so sad. I can, like, envision him sitting there. Yeah. I know. It is so sad. All right, so for some updates. A hearing to determine whether Joe Bryan should be granted a new trial came to a dramatic conclusion on Monday, with which is like a few weeks ago now mm -hmm. because we had technical difficulties. Yes. But with a surprise 11th hour admission from the expert witness whose testimony had proved critical in convicting the former high school principal of the 1985 murder of his wife, Mickey. I want you all to hear this very clearly. Retired police detective Robert Thorman said... Quote, my conclusions were wrong. Some of the techniques and methodology were incorrect. Therefore, some of my testimony was not correct. Hmm. Was not correct. Yep. 
Blood stain pattern analysis is a forensic discipline whose practitioners regard the drops, spatters, and trails of blood at a crime scene as clues which can sometimes be used to reverse engineer the crime itself. Thorman had only 40 hours of training in the discipline when he was called in to work on the Bryan case. His testimony about a blood-speckled flashlight that Mickey's brother found in the trunk of Bryan's car four days after the murder made the state's tenuous theory of the crime seem plausible. At Bryan's trial in 1986, and then again at his 1989 retrial, Thorman testified that tiny flecks of blood on the flashlight could only be, quote, backspatter, a pattern that indicated a close-range shooting. What connection to the flashlight had to the crime, if any, was never clear. In 1985, a crime lab chemist found that the blood on it was type O, which corresponded not only to Mickey, but to nearly half the population. But Thorman effectively tied the flashlight to the crime scene, going so far as to say that the killer had likely held the flashlight in one hand while firing a pistol with the other. Brian had been attending a principal's convention in Austin, 120 miles from where the murder occurred in Clifton, Texas, in the days surrounding the murder. He has always maintained that he was in Austin asleep in his hotel room at the time of the crime during both trials. Thorman also helped explain away one of the biggest holes in the state's case. No blood was ever found in the interior of Brian's Mercury, though the prosecution alleged that Brian fled the messy crime scene in his car. Thorman provided an explanation for this, asserting that the killer had changed his clothes and shoes in the master bathroom of the Brian home before making his escape. In no way did I lie in my report or testimony, Thorman stated in his affidavit, which is dated September 13th. I was doing what I thought was correct as a result of my training at the time. Thorman, who is now 80, did not specify which parts of his testimony had been incorrect. The affidavit was read aloud on the stand by Montgomery County Crime Scene Investigator Celestina Rossi, who had previously challenged the accuracy of Thorman's analysis. Prosecutors who glanced at each other repeatedly as she read the affidavit appeared taken off guard. Huh. Imagine that. You know, so, in a sense, you know, Thorman, he was not an expert, but he was told he was an expert, and he did what he thought he knew. Mm -hmm. And here he is now, 80 years old, saying, I messed up, like I was wrong. That's a hard pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. You know, that is a very hard pill to swallow. It really is. And you got to think back. This was in the 80s. This was not now. You know, if this had happened now, oh, it'd be a shit show. Yeah. But this was in the 80s where they thought what they were doing was right. Mm -hmm. And although it's probably put a lot of innocent people in jail, I do kind of feel bad for Thorman in a sense that he has to admit now that I was not right because who thought that science was going to advance as much as it had since the 80s, yeah. you know, and that they were going to realize, oh my God, we've been doing this wrong a very long time. Yeah. That makes sense? I do feel sorry for him, but at the same time, his quote unquote analysis that there's blood on the flashlight is what put Joe in prison. Well, and I just... Much. It was the only physical, air quotes there, physical right. evidence that they had. Yeah. So, another update... October 8th, 2018, an influential state commission issued a highly critical assessment on Friday of a second key player in the murder conviction of Joe Bryan, saying a Texas Department of Public Safety crime lab chemist had overstated findings, exceeding her expertise, and engaged in speculation when she testified in 1989. In a report issued at its quarterly meeting, the Texas Forensic Science Commission also found that the now-retired chemist, Patricia Retzlaff failed to do thorough analysis of the key DNA evidence in 2012 after a judge allowed such testing. 
The report marks the second time in just three months that the Commission, a national leader in forensic science reform, has highlighted serious flaws in the prosecution of Brian, a former high school principal who has now spent more than 30 years in prison over the murder of his wife, Mickey, a fourth grade teacher in Clifton, Texas. In July, the Commission found that the blood spatter analysis used to convict Brian was erroneous. Is that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was just waiting. Among the items that were not fully analyzed was a cigarette butt that was discovered at the crime scene. Defense had long contended that the cigarette butt is proof that someone other than the Bryans, who did not smoke, entered their home on the night of the crime. The case's lead investigator claimed that he accidentally tracked it into the home on the heel of his boot. Okay, Amy, this has been bugging me. And I hate to throw our business out there, but we are smokers. Yes. And how many times have you put a cigarette out with your shoe and it stay attached to your shoe and follow you? Mm Mm-hmm. 15 steps. But how many times has it done it when it was damp outside? This is true. No, I'm saying it doesn't happen. Oh. I'm saying, yeah, no. Well, I mean, it's happened to me before, but I just, I mean, like, it's right there and then it still, gets off. Just to say that it tracked in when it was wet outside, you know, and damp to go no, in the house. I, I just don't think that's possible. I don't think that's even, I just want to go outside and... Put a bunch of cigarette butts on the ground and step on them and see if they fall. I have never in my life had a cigarette butt follow me into my house or my car or anything. On one of the parts that we did, I don't even remember which part it is mm-hmm. now, but Leon Smith did that test and it didn't work. True. Very true. The commission noted that there was ample DNA extract remaining, which could be analyzed. Troubled by these discoveries, the commission urged Texas DPS, the state's top law enforcement agency, to review a broader sample of Retzlaff's work to assess whether similar observations regarding testimony and thoroughness of of analysis are present in other cases. Brian was the subject of two-part investigation by ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine in May that questioned the accuracy of the bloodstain pattern analysis used to convict him, as well as the training of the experts who testified in such cases. In July, the commission found that the blood spatter analysis used to convict Brian was not accurate and scientifically supported. The expert who testified was entirely wrong. The commission found that Retzlaff, then known as Patricia Almanza, made numerous speculative and unscientific assertions at Brian's 1989 trial, some of which bolstered the prosecution's case. Among them, number one, Retzlaff testified that hairs at the crime scene in the Bryan home belonged solely to Joe and Mickey, even though the method Retzlaff employed, microscopic hair comparisons, did not make such definitive determinations. Her testimony, which the commission called not scientifically supportable and misleading, helped undermine the defense's argument that an intruder killed Mickey. Number two, Retzlaff lent credence to the prosecution theory that the killer, after shooting Mickey, took the time to change his clothes and shoes before fleeing the crime scene. This theory helped explain away one of the biggest holes in the state's cases. No blood was ever found in the interior of Brian's mercury, though prosecutors claimed that Brian fled the messy crime scene in his car. Under questioning from a prosecutor, Retzlaff agreed that the lack of blood outside of the master bedroom where Mickey was shot suggested the killer had cleaned up and changed before exiting the house, which a cop would know how to do or know why to do that, right? Right. Dunlap. Exactly. Sorry. (laughs) Commission member Jarvis Parsons, the group's sole prosecutor, characterized this as totally outside the realm of her expertise. Mm -hmm. Number three. Retzlaff testified that fibers on a key piece of evidence, a blood-speckled flashlight that Mickey's brother said he found in the trunk of Brian's car, were consistent with fibers from the trunk of Brian's car. Yet, no notes in the case file indicate she ever conducted a fiber comparison. Brian was tried twice, first in 1986 and then again in 1989. 
Though Retzlaff testified at both trials, the commission only reviewed her 1989 testimony since Bryant's retrial formed the basis of his appeal. The commission's findings further strengthen the defense's argument that Bryant, now 78 and in poor health, deserves a new trial. Bryant had been attending a principal's convention in Austin, 120 miles from where the murder occurred in the days surrounding the murder. Has always maintained that he was in Austin asleep in his hotel room at the time of the crime. Friday's meeting was attended by the key figures in Brian's ongoing legal quest for a new trial. Bosque County DA Adam Sibley and Brian's attorneys Walter Rivas and Jessica Freud of Waco. My conclusions were wrong. Thorman, a retired police detective, wrote in an affidavit. Some of the techniques and methodology were incorrect. Therefore, some of my testimony was not correct. The state and defense will submit their written summations of the testimony presented at the hearing to Judge Doug Shaver on November 9, 2018. The judge will then recommend to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals whether Brian should receive a new trial. That court's justice will be the final arbiters. Additional untested evidence like Mickey's sexual assault kit, which, did you not read something earlier that said they tested the swab and there was nothing there? Yeah, but I don't know because of this. Okay. That yeah. you're about like, to read. They may have said that, but right. additional untested evidence like Mickey's sexual assault kit could have potential probative value, the commission noted in its report. The Bosque County DA's office has blocked the defense's effort to have these items tested. Judge James Morgan, who presided over both of Brian's trials, ordered testing to proceed last year. Prosecutors appealed his decision to Texas 11th Court of Appeals, which has not yet handed down an opinion. Bosque County DA Adam Sibley has now been told by the Texas Forensic Science Commission a second time that there is compromised scientific testimony supporting Joe's conviction, Freud said, and still he lets another day of this 32-year-long injustice persist. So hopefully we will have some kind of update or answers very soon. Yes. Um, on what, you know, I know they presented it to the judge on November 9th, so there's no telling how long it's going to take for them to process that for the judge to make a decision so hopefully they can test it amy cool. do we have any itunes reviews we do we have four of them yay so the first one comes from fellow podcasters a paranormal chicks they are my jam <laughs> i listen to them every week donna and carrie y'all are the bomb.com jessica will never listen because she's a scaredy cat i am a total scaredy cat but it's really good they said, love this podcast. Can't wait to see what the future holds for them. Really enjoy the less covered cases. Definitely a breath of fresh air for the true crime community. Thank you, Donna and Carrie. Yes, thank you so much. Even though I'm too chicken to listen to your podcast, Amy has wonderful things to say about y'all, and I have no doubt that y'all know what y'all are doing. So. so true. Thank you. The second one comes from Dana, a.k.a. Shorty Gonzo. Random laughs right in the middle of sick, twisted, serious stuffs. Fuzzy end of the lollipop, short end of the stick. <laughs> they killed me and I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Dana. We love you too. The third one comes from Heather Wright. She is the co-host of both Nature versus Narcissism and Status Pending Podcasts. Also one of my favorites. Recently found this podcast through Facebook when the hosts reached out to me and I'm so glad they did. This podcast is well done and relaxed, so you feel as though you're hanging out with fellow true crime-loving friends. I highly recommend this podcast and can't wait to see where they go. I would love to collaborate with them sometime, too. We would love to do that, Heather. I think my favorite part is the bloopers at the end. I spend so much time editing out bloopers and sometimes add them in. They make me want to keep them in every episode. 
It's a good way to come down from the rough, intense feeling you have after hearing about true crime. Keep up the great work, ladies. Thank, Thank you, Heather. You, Heather. The last one comes from Debbie1560. I really enjoy your podcast. Great stories and very easy to listen to presentation of the crimes. I also love your chemistry. You guys are great together. Keep them coming. Aw, thank you. Thank you, Debbie. We really appreciate it. We love doing this, even though we may not be consistent. No, consistent is not the word. So, um, we are wanting to maybe, do we want to talk about this now? Yeah, we might. Yeah, yeah. So, we're going to have to kind of with the holidays coming up and everything else we're just going to try to release one episode a month not maybe a one-parter or two-parter and we'll do both of them right if, the, if it's a two-parter then we'll post them both in the same month it exactly. won't be you know maybe every once in a while we'll do a bonus episode exactly exactly but um due to just the holidays and commitment and work and everything else going on it's just impossible for us to do one a week yeah you know so we're gonna we're gonna shoot for one a month and if you get more feel special yep it's fabulous we do have some shout outs for podcasts we do we do okay um so one of my new favorites it's called the golden ghouls and they are so fun and they are three girls from the austin area and they do um it's really kind of cool because every episode is a different subject Mm -hmm. um like one of them was haunted castles and so each of them will like research haunted castles all over the world and then they'll tell their story and so it's really kind of cool because you know they each have their own story and it's usually two or three stories a piece nice per episode so it's really cool and i really love (laughs) y'all yay what's yours fangirl so right now I'm listening to Happy Face, which is from the daughter's perspective of her father, who was the Happy Face serial killer. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting, and it's getting better because they are, uh, you know, talks about her childhood and growing up with her dad and things that you know occurred in their family. And um, now they're actually interviewing some of the victims' family members, and like she's sitting down with children of people her dad murdered their mother and they're sitting together and so it's very interesting very intense very um, rough yes it's it is so but it raw is very that's a good word raw is a good word um because you just don't know what's going to come out of their mouths right um but very good i'm loving happy face but i'm also listening to um life after link don't listen to it if you cannot handle uh, anything it has to do with children it's a very sad story um, but I think it's very important for women to listen to, especially single mothers who allow these men to come into their lives because yes. they think they know who they are. And it turns out you don't know who they are. So I don't want to spoil it, but um, it's very good because it's the mother telling her story. And she right. has, she has a, a co-podcaster with her that is helping lay it all out. But it's it's her words out of her mouth. Yeah, and it it is also raw. I am not even going to lie. Mm-hmm. I was driving down the road bawling my eyes out listening Mm -hmm. to one of the episodes because it was just yes it's a very touchy subjects um as far as child abuse so um listen with caution but it the i appreciate what they're doing and i hope that there are other mothers out there that are single mothers will listen to this and they don't see her signs of control and abuse yeah and she really lays that out for them to say okay guys if this is going on this isn't because he loves you this is because he's psycho and there's something wrong with him. He's messed up. Exactly. So those are mine. Yeah. So um, we have a few updates. Yes. Go ahead, Ames. Um, So we have our Facebook page. 
10-96 Crime Chicks podcast. Yes. Our um, Twitter page, is, the handle is at 96crime. We have a contest that we have posted on both of those. So if you want to get in on the contest. Yes. We need a logo, folks. So yes. So if any of y'all are artistic or know how to design a logo, we need an official 1096 Crime Chicks logo. And we are open to whatever. So just throw us some ideas out there and let us see what your crazy creative mind can come up with. Because then you may win some free merch and maybe something else along the way. Yeah. So, And we're going to keep that open until Christmas Day. Yes. So there's yeah. more than a month. Oh, yeah. Which we know with the holidays. People get busy. But if you can get it out there, that would be great. We're hoping by the new year we can have our logo and start getting some merch out um, to our listeners and to our fans. So, yes. Um, Amy, you got some more shout-outs, didn't you? Yeah. Well, first, I wanted to just ask you all to keep a fellow podcaster in in your prayers. Lindsay and Perry Johnson are very close friends of mine. I went to school with Lindsay from elementary all the way through high school. Perry has been diagnosed with stage four cancer and he's just going through a lot right now. So please keep him in your thoughts and prayers because they are great people. They have Hello Life WTF and they also have the pod stuff. They haven't released anything here recently, obviously, because Perry's been very sick. We just want to absolutely yeah. keep them in our thoughts. They're they are great fighting people. a very hard uphill battle right now. Yeah. So, okay. And finally, our podcast of the week that we are going to put at the end of the episode is All Crime No Cattle. We love Aaron and Shay. They have both been super supportive of us. Poor Aaron. I just have to say thank you for letting Shay talk to me all night long through Facebook Messenger. I was asking a bunch of questions and it was so beneficial and we really appreciate both of y'all. So that is what we are going to do at the end of the podcast. Um, right before the bloopers is the promo for All Crime No Cattle. Who I love. Yes. Wait, was it last that I talked about their their uh, episode on Dimebag Daryl? Yes. Yes. Which yeah. is one of my favorite. If any rock fans are out there, Dimebag Daryl was the band member from Pantera that was killed, and I love that episode. As a matter of fact, I might even listen to it again because yeah, I loved they're, it. They're awesome. I really liked their um, serial killer one that they just that Aaron just put out mm-hmm. um, about the Border Patrol agent. Yes, because that, that was is, recent. Right, and yes. it's an ongoing case, but so she, it was it was good. It was yeah. really good, Erin. We really liked it. And so. the new one is episode 38, Strip Clubs and Hired Guns. I have not listened to it yet, but it describes what does a city mayor, a strip club, the Dallas Cowboys, and a murder-for-hire plot have in common. <laughs> Guys, if that does not <laughs> scream, listen to me. I don't know what does. So as soon as we're done recording this and I go lay down, I'm probably going to be listening to that one. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Anyways, thank you guys for being patient with us with our technical difficulties. We basically just had to completely re-record this, but finding the time and the day to do it uh, was a little bit impossible. So we've got it done. We are here for y'all. And um, who knows what's next because we've concluded Jody Bryan. So um, we got a few ideas. Throw some ideas at us and find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Um, listen to us on iTunes, Podbean, and... I have Overcast where I'm there. I'm not Overcast. really sure about Stitcher. I think we can get on Spotify now because we have enough episodes. Perfect. But I'll work on that. I love Spotify. So, anyways, thank you guys so much, and um, we'll be talking to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye.
Hi, True Crime fans. I'm Erin. And I'm Shay. We host All Crime, No Cattle, a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the Lone Star State. We strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about Texas cases big and small. We do the research so you don't have to. We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. DeForest and Ristenbat were troubled by the significance that was pros... Ooh, start over. Starting over. <laughs> the victim had been sexually assaulted and DNA testing of the rape. Rape. God bless America. La la la. <laughs> okay. Open those vocals. Rebus would have to. Did you like that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Despite advances in DNA testing that had unlocked the secrets to innumerable seemingly irresistible. <laughs> Start back at the slide. <laughs> But I mean, uh, look at the Golden State Killer. Oops, that was a microphone plump. <laughs> Blunder. Sorry, guys, that was really loud. So I bet that blinded or blinded. I bet that blinded them. I bet it did too. I bled. I bled. I'm gonna stop talking now. Okay. <laughs> Despite the efforts of Smith, Freud in a private. In, oh, okay. Allowing someone with such limited proficiency. Under the newly elected Bosque County District Attorney, Adam Sibley, their requests met... I'm going to start that over because I just kind of messed up. <laughs> the troubling case that prompted its inquiry centered... Okay. Shortly after the commission's announcement that it was looking into Clark Kate... <laughs> in February, the commission made one of the most consequent... Consequential? Mm-hmm. Okay. He told me... He... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At Brian's trial in 1986. Yes, bud. Go ahead and finish up, Amy. I'll take care of this. Okay. <laughs> Among the items that were not fully analyzed was a ser- I already read that part, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Okay. Retzlaff left. Ooh. Her mouth. Her mouth. Her name is a mouthful. <laughs> her mouth, mouth is a name well, for her mouth ain't doing nothing right either because she didn't know what the hell she was doing here. But her name is a mouthful. Put at the end. Yes, son. Yes. Okay. Start over, Amy. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs>